Well, have you ever cried out for help? Maybe it was a situation where your life was in danger. Or a time when you felt completely under attack or out of control. Maybe it was during a time of intense relational conflict, when the connection between you and someone else was being ripped apart at the seams. And all you could say was, help. Maybe it was when someone close to you betrayed you. I wonder if you have a memory in mind that comes instantly. It's not, not many of you may, but maybe something that was so intense just comes to your mind immediately. A time when you felt most in need of the help of God and his intervention. Or maybe you're here today and, and you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, and yet you found yourself in direst of circumstances yelling out to a God you're not even sure exists. You just know you need help from someone stronger than you. Well, King David, the king of Israel in the Old Testament, knew many of these sorts of scenarios I've just listed. He knew what it felt like to have his life threatened over and over again. He knew what it meant to be under literal physical attack. He knew severely broken relationships, including with those nearest and dearest to his heart. I mean, the guy had a son try to kill him. And David knew the gut punch of betrayal from a best friend. In Psalm 28, we see David, during what appears to be another terrible circumstance in his life, cry out to God. And so, what's his cry like? What can we learn from David's appeal to the Lord? And most importantly, this morning as a church, how can we be pointed to the greater David, Jesus, through this psalm? Well, follow along as I read for us the nine verses of Psalm 28. Of David, to you, O Lord, I call my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil's in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they don't regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down, build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord. For he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart exalts, and I'm helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people. Bless your heritage. Be their shepherd. And carry them forever. A call from David to the Lord. And I think this psalm can be divided somewhat neatly into three sections. In verses 1 through 2, we see a cry for help. A cry for help. Verses 3 through 5, we see a plea for justice. A plea for justice. And verses 6 through 9, we see a song of thanks. A song 
of thanks. So, first, a cry for help. We're not exactly sure what the situation here is for David. That's the case in a lot of Psalms. Some Psalms we do know exactly where he's at because it tells us. This one we're not sure. However, if you scan real quick back to Psalms 26 and 27, you'll see similar themes in all of these three Psalms, showing that he was probably in the same predicament in in Psalms 26 through 27. You see themes like a desire to be vindicated, a, a cry for deliverance from enemies. And then an acknowledgement of the broader community of Israel. These these themes permeate the the three psalms that we're seeing the capstone of in Psalm 28. Yet in spite of our ignorance as to David's condition, we learn much from how he runs to God. So look with me at verse 1. David says, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me. So we see here not just David's cry, not just his need, but, but at the beginning of the sentence, we see his intended target. Before we ever see his need, before we ever see his, his call, we see the object of his call. It is, to you, O Lord, I call. And that hope is not in his own power, not in his own skill, but in his own God. It is to the Lord that he calls, the Lord, Yahweh, that personal covenantal name for God in the Hebrew that is shown in your Bibles as caps L-O-R-D. This God is David's rock, as Noah reminded us earlier. This idea of God as a rock threads throughout the whole Old Testament. So what Noah read for us from 2 Samuel 22 is very similar to Psalm 18, where David says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. It's like David got up a thesaurus and just started like plugging in all these different words. I mean, can you get any clearer about where your hope is than David is in Psalm 18, verse 1? Rock, fortress, deliverer, rock again, refuge, shield, horn, stronghold. But why call God a rock? Well, what's in view here is not a rock you pick up and skip in the pond. What is in view here is a rock formation that shows strength and safety and stability. If you've seen the the movie, and now the title's escaping me, of that guy who climbed up the whole rock face in Yosemite or wherever that was, think that kind of rock, right? What was it called? Thank you. Solo. Yeah, that kind of rock. One one scholar envisions something like a crevice in a cliff in which you would take shelter and find refuge in the midst of the swirl of fear and opposition that's whipping around you. That kind of rock. That's God. And Christian, I think we're all fine with thinking of God as a, a rock for his people. That seems right and true. We've heard that many times. But God... David sees God as his rock. You know, we can sing hymns about Christ, the solid rock. You can find inspirational quotes about the firm foundation we find in the Lord and his word. But if we don't personally find in God a rock for us, for our personal pain and our personal sorrow, for our private needs and the cries we yell when nobody else is around, what good is it that he's a rock? David finds in God a rock for himself. 
He cries out from his heart to the only one he knows he can truly trust. So Christian, is God a rock for you? Where is your refuge? Where do you hide when everything goes badly? What's the 911 for your soul? Is it God? Or if you're honest, is it really something else or someone else? Most ultimately. Let me encourage you, you don't need to reach a certain tier or level of Christian, a certain maturity of a follower of Jesus before you do what David does in Psalm 28. You can cry out right now. Really, the only requirement to pray like David prays here is to know you need God. So David calls out to God as his rock. He asks him to hear his plea. He says, be not deaf to me. Why? Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. The the pit represents death. David's in a bad spot, isn't he? He's using a pretty serious if-then statement here. He's saying, if you don't save me, then I'm going to die. That's an SOS. That's a mayday, mayday. Verse 2. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help. David asks his rock, his refuge, to show him mercy, to bring him deliverance. He says, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. I love the idea of lifting hands in prayer. It can mean a variety of different things in how it represents our prayers. But I like to think of it as, and others do too, as this idea of need. I mean, what do you do when you're reaching out for something? You're seeking to grasp it. You're seeking to receive something. And what, what do you do when you, when you lift up your hands? You lift up empty hands, don't you? The way a child in need might reach out to a parent. That child is saying, I can't do anything right now. All I can do is cry and reach out. It is towards the Holy of Holies that David reaches out, the place where God's presence dwelt most intensely and directly with his people. David is seeking God in his holy place to come to his aid. This is a cry for help. Next, a plea for justice in verses 3 through 5. So in, in the three psalms I mentioned, this trilogy of psalms, Psalm 26, Psalm 27, Psalm 28, we see this common thread of David being fearful that he's going to be unjustly accused along with wicked men. So he's concerned he's going to be lumped in with evildoers and eventually experience their fate, their judgment. His fear here, as, as Derek Kidner puts in his commentary on the psalms, is not the fear of death as such, but of death with unmerited disgrace. So he cries out to the God of justice to give him mercy and judge those who are wicked. Look at verse 3. He says, he prays, Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil. Very much like Psalm 26, 9. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, he says there. There in the second half of verse 3, he describes these wicked men as those who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. These men are deceivers. Their speech is filled with falsehood and trickery. And so David, in his cry for mercy, cries out, God, have justice. 
Verse 4, give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Friend, justice is something we all desire. When we see the wicked prosper, our hearts know something isn't right. And this is the reason so many of us have been angered and saddened and burdened by the events in Afghanistan in past days. To see those who are vulnerable fall prey to the wicked schemes of man strikes us as terribly wrong. And so we seek someone to blame. We try to make sense of damage done. We know something must be done to address all of this and make things right. We cry for justice. And here, David sees God as the ultimate judge and arbitrator of justice. What's right, what's wrong. And so he doesn't hesitate to ask God to work justice in his life, to spare him the punishment of the wicked, and to repay them what their deeds have earned. This is important. For God, justice and mercy are never at odds. God never mutes one of those characteristics so he can exercise the other. For our God, justice and mercy are always true of him all the time. And if you think about that, that has to be true. In order for God to be merciful, he's got to be just. Because when wrongs are committed against those who need mercy, when the innocent are abused, mercy will often be seen in the reckoning of judgment on those who abused, on those who committed the wrong. Part of mercy will be the condemnation of the wicked. And this is because God's mercy is not just a well-wishing hallmark card. Yeah, I know things stink right now. I, I'm so sorry. I feel merciful towards you. I hope you feel better. God's mercy is powerful. It executes. It's effectual. For God, his justice upholds his mercy. And his mercy always operates in terms of his justice. And nowhere is this seen in more striking detail, Christian, than at the cross. At the cross, you were saved by the mercy of God, the greatest display of God's mercy ever. But the cross itself was a courtroom in which justice was served. That's why Jesus died. He he died because justice was served not to you, but to him. You're saved now because God made a way for his justice to be satisfied while his mercy was displayed. All at once, justice and mercy meet at the cross. And so, Christian, we should pray for God's justice to be done in this world as well as his mercy. These are not at odds with each other. But notice how David prays for justice. He doesn't say, God, get me alone in a room with that guy. Five minutes, that's all I need. No, he prays for God to judge. God is the final and rightful judge. And I I think at times when we feel wronged, when we feel 
that we have been sinned against, we, we really want to exercise the justice ourselves. And of course, in some ways, that will be necessary. Some of us, in the jobs that we have or the positions of authority we, we've been given, we will have this duty to exercise justice. But sometimes we're just going to feel vindictive. We're just going to want to make others pay. And when that's the case, we can take a tip from David because David gives his concern to the one with proper jurisdiction in all matters. As Tremper Longman puts it, the psalmist does not take it on himself to hurt them, but he turns his anger over to God. So Christian, in your anger against injustice, whether it's in your life or or in the world, I'm not saying you shouldn't pursue justice. That is a very Christian thing to do, a very biblical thing to do. But are you first asking God to work justice? Have you turned to him and are you trusting him? Or are you taking vengeance into your own hands? There in verse 5, we see some of the characteristics of these unrighteous men. David says, because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. See, these men have seen God's works of deliverance, but they have not honored him. They do not regard his works. But while they may not regard God's works, David says, God, regard theirs, please. While they may not be giving God his due for what he has done, he's going to give them their due for what they have done. Friend, I wonder if, if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're not sure you are. Perhaps you were raised that way and now you're kind of like reassessing. What do you do with the injustices you see in the world? I mean, they're all over the headlines. Where do you go for hope? when all of that just kind of cascades down on you. I mean, you know, if we really work and someone gets justice, that's great. But for that one person who gets justice, there's probably 10,000 others who will die never being heard. What are you going to do with that? Are you just going to chalk it up to, I mean, that's just how it is. It is what it is. I'm grieved by it, but it's, It's how it rolls. Will those wrongs ever be righted? And if many wrongs aren't going to be righted, then why even fight for the right to begin with? It seems futile. It seems meaningless. It feels like it's not even worth fighting for it anymore. I wonder where you turn when everything feels hopeless. Friend, turn to the God of the Bible. The God who lives, he is just. He's not just a genie in a bottle that you rub the right way and he'll grant you certain wishes. He's a judge on a throne who hands down sentences that will be executed always. And so if somebody dies, and some, or if somebody lives the perfect life after abusing many others and dies, they will receive justice. And Christian... Don't try to make excuses for God when you're talking to someone else about his judgment and his justice. Don't try to weaken God's wrath to make him seem more palatable to those you're trying to persuade. I don't think we're in the culture for that anymore, and I think it's true anyway. I think there's a lot of mad people out there who want justice, 
And I wonder if a God who is just is actually a lot more appealing right now than he would have been 20 years ago, 15 years ago. This idea of justice is one of the truths about God people desperately need, even if they don't know it. Okay, well, we've seen a cry for help. We've seen a plea for justice. Finally, we see a song of thanks. Look at verse 6. David has pleaded with God for mercy. But we haven't learned yet if God has actually responded, right? Verse 6 gives us the answer. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. God has directly heard David. This is good news, Christian. Prayer, crying out to God, is not just therapeutic. It's not just a kind of cathartic release of pent-up emotion in a time of immense stress. It's not like the equivalent of like a stress ball, right, at your desk. Prayer is talking to a God who hears, who is not deaf or silent, who's not remote or distant. God is a personal God who actually hears his people. I remember being struck years ago, hearing a story about how certain people were processing their grief uh, after losing loved ones in Japan. Uh, Particularly poignant practice after the tsunami of 2011 in which almost 20,000 perished. So in a town called Otsuchi, Japan, a, a man built a white phone booth to cope with his cousin who had died from cancer just a few months before the tsunami. And then the tsunami came, and in years since, the the phone booth has been used by many who have had loved ones ripped away by death. What do they do? Well, they just go into the phone booth, and they pick up the phone, and they find solace in in trying to, to keep having conversations with those they've lost, perhaps lost instantly and never had a chance to say goodbye. Marie Saito of Reuters wrote an article this past March, and she told the story of of one woman who lost her husband in in the tsunami, and she went to the phone booth, and she tried to connect with him, and she said, uh, that Saito wrote in her article, that this, this woman says she sometimes feels like she can even hear her husband on the other end of the line, and it makes her feel better, she says. And church, that that story has has touched me ever since I I heard it. I I keep thinking about it, and it's been years. And I think it's a beautiful and possibly effective way for people to grapple with just unexplained grief. I think for for those of us who are kind of a little bit removed from that story, as we kind of look in on it from the outside, we're touched by it, but we kind of see like, ah, let's just pretend I mean, those phone calls aren't going anywhere. I sure, I hope there's a semblance of comfort, but it just seems like one side of the conversation is being held. It's just sad. It's hopeless. I don't don't want to downplay that story. I don't want to downplay those people's grief at all. But I do wonder if we as Christians can begin to think of our prayers to God and our cries for help to him as much like that white phone booth in Otsuchi. I mean, prayer, we never hear anything from the other end. 
Is this just a one-sided conversation? Is it really going anywhere? Is prayer doing anything more than just making us feel better? At least it's therapeutic to cry out to somebody or something. Christian, hear David's words. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Blessed be the Lord, he is a listening, hearing, responding God. Of course prayer helps us. Of course prayer is a comfort for our souls. But it is certainly not a one-sided conversation. For God hears. He is not a dumb idol. But he hears. Maybe you remember that epic story in 1 Kings 18 where the prophet Elijah is having a standoff with the prophets of the false god named Baal. And they're trying to determine which is the more powerful deity by calling on their respective gods to rain down fire from heaven on their sacrifices. And as the prophets of Baal cry and cry out and do detestable things to their bodies to try to get their gods to listen to them or their God, Elijah mocks them. He says, cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and he must be awakened. I mean, that's pretty cutting sarcasm, isn't it? And we might, we might chuckle at it, but, but I wonder if many of us often treat God the same way. I think part of the reason we as Christians almost always say our prayer lives are not what we think they should be that our prayer lives are lacking in power and vitality is because we don't really believe God is listening and that he's going to act. We might not think he's actually asleep, but I think the way we neglect our prayer life acts like he really is. Well, church, here in Psalm 28, be reminded God certainly hears. In fact, our story as Christians is that very thing, that we have cried out to God for mercy and he has responded. That's a story of our hope and our new life, that we called out and he answered, that he forgave, that he saved. So Christian, rejoice. When you cry out to God, he hears you in Christ. Oh, he won't do whatever you ask him to do. He's better than that. He knows what you need, not just what you want. And he hears it. And he will reveal himself to you, most primarily in the thousands and thousands of words of this living book, but also through the counsel of others, through prayer, through the local church. He will hear you. And when he hears and you see proof of his kindness and mercy, well, then you're to give thanks. See, in our relationships with others, in our relationships with the Lord, our trust is built up and strengthened when we see, we see the trustworthiness of the other person proven over and over again, right? Oh, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. And when we see that, when we see the evidence of God's kindness over and over again, we sing. Look at verse 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. 
See, David's strength is not in his own might, but in his Lord. David's shield, that is his protection, is not in his own strategies against his enemies, but in his Lord. And so his heart rejoices in his Lord. His heart rejoices. This isn't mere lip service. This isn't superficial or shallow praise. David has poured out his heart in his need, and now he pours out his heart in his praise. He means it. So I wonder, Christian, where do you find yourself in desperate need of God right now? Maybe you can't think of anything. And so if that's the case, maybe your first step is to admit you need help. Right? But once you get there, Where do you find yourself in desperate need of God? Are you crying out to him? For those of you who have proven God's faithfulness over and over, are you singing a song of thanks? What is your song, I wonder? What are the lyrics? For each one of us in Christ, our song is ultimately that we were lost in sin That God showed mercy to us in condemning our Savior in our place. That he has given us forgiveness and mercy at the cross. That's why we sing. But as we live out our days in Christ, our songs take on more and more verses, don't they? As we see the gospel work itself out in our brokenness and our need. So what's the song you're singing today, Christian? Maybe it's God's presence in times of great anxiety and depression and hopelessness. Maybe it's his provision in times when you've seen yourself in immense physical need. Maybe it's his peace in times of sickness and disease. Maybe it's his rebuke in times when you've gone wayward from him. Are you singing? Do other people hear you singing? In verse 8, David widens his scope to include not merely himself, but all of God's people. He says, the Lord is the strength of his people. He is a saving refuge of his anointed. O save your people, bless your heritage, be their shepherd, and carry them forever. That reference to God's anointed is one we see in other places in the Psalms. Here it might refer to all of Israel, right? Because that's kind of the context in verses 8 and 9. Or it might, you know, as it is in other places, particularly pointing to David as the anointed king of Israel. But either way, we're reminded of the anointed one who came after David. The Messiah in David's line, Jesus himself. This psalm takes on a new significance when we read it as a psalm not only of David but of David's greater son. See, can you think of a time when Jesus would have uttered the words of a psalm like this? At the cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, finding himself in a place of need for deliverance, crying out to his Father, to you, O Lord, I call, my rock, be not deaf to me, Yet not my will, but yours be done. 
Jesus cried out to his father, but for a time he did not hear his father's voice. For a time he did go down to the pit. He went down to death for his people. On the cross, Jesus was condemned and punished by the judge of the earth for the sin of all those who would turn in faith and put their trust in him. In the end, Jesus was greeted by God's silence so he could bear the death you and I deserved. But that wasn't the end of the story. Jesus wasn't left in the grave. His final resting place was not in the pit with the wicked, but God raised him up on the third day. And by faith in Christ, we know he will do the same for us. Because Jesus died and received God's judgment, because Jesus was raised and received God's vindication, we can know we too will be delivered, rescued, our prayer heard. And that is our confidence. Friend, if you don't know this new life, if you don't know that confidence, you can know it today. Trust in Jesus. Place your faith in him and what he has done for sinners like you. You're never too bad for Jesus to save. Tremper Longman writes, Although Jesus was dragged away with the wicked, crucified between two sinners, prisoners, God heard his cry for help and raised him from the dead. God was a fortress of salvation for his anointed one, and thus we can call on him to be our shepherd and carry us forever. Let's pray.